Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, everybody. As always, I'm Mike, joined by my co-hostess, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Hello. Um, and we have a very, very, very special episode in store as the two of us recently got the chance to check out the documentary, which is also just became available to stream for everyone through Electric Entertainment. Uh, you can find it through various sources. I know it's on Amazon Prime. Um is the probably maybe like the biggest one as of now, but it's popping up all over the place. Uh, that documentary is Rondo and Bob detailing the often troubled life of Bob Burns, the absolutely legendary and brilliant art director who uh, got to start with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and go would go on to Hills Have Eyes, Taurus Trap, Reanimators, and, and so much more. But uh, most importantly, to the documentary itself uh and the story it tells it's um kind of his obsession fascination with the famed horror icon rondo hatton um a facet of bob himself i had absolutely no clue about before this um rondo of course famously known as the creeper and more or less used by hollywood for his unfortunate disfigurement due to um acromegalia um any horror or film nerd worth their salt knows these guys, obviously. Um, so likely any listener of this podcast. But how their two stories, as different as they can be, also line up in a kind of beautiful but somber and, and haunting symmetry of polar opposite but spiritual similarity. And it really makes you reflect, at least I know for me personally, on those around you who you may who may look fine on the outside and you kind of often write off as, as wacky or eccentric and how you might be actually ignoring their real needs. So needless to say, this is a, this is a doc that really, really makes you um, sit down and focus a little bit more um, and is beyond fascinating. Um, it's an absolute must see for any genre fan but it definitely extends beyond that. And we are really, really happy to have the director of this very film, Joe Connell, here with us. Thanks for having me, guy. I just want to start off by just asking, what what really pulled you toward making the film? How, how did you how did you come across this story that, that there was even a story here to tell? Because it's something that's um, not, I wouldn't say is very well known. Yeah, I mean, to Bob's friends. Uh I my first movie was called Danger God or is called Danger God about a B movie stuntman Gary Kent B movie stuntman and star uh, and Gary and at the time uh, well Bob Burns was a serial blood donor which is very appropriate and I think he probably liked the humor in that <laughs> uh, and, and he reached the five gallon limit uh, and so they had a big event at the Austin Austin Texas Blood Bank for him. Gary Ken invited me to go to it, and I had never met Bob before. I was doing a newspaper column for the Austin American Statesman about the film industry. And I showed up and talked to Bob, uh, and at the end, he handed me a script, which was called Rondo and May. 
And it was a script he'd written about the love story of Rondo and his wife, May. Uh, and so we're near the end of doing Danger God. It's coming out, thinking about other stuff. My editor sends me some clips that he'd shot of Bob Burns in Seguin, Texas, where he lived in his last years. And uh, then he sent me a clip. He said, or, you, or he just said, I'm watching this video from the blood bank. And here comes Gary Ken in the room. And I said, yeah, am I right behind him? He said, yeah. We didn't know each other back then, but we realized that we both had this common thing with Bob Burns, that we both knew him. Uh, and so I thought, yeah, Bob Burns deserves a documentary just about himself, but I'm more fascinated with his uh, obsession with Rondo and what it says about him. Uh, so that set us off on the journey. And we... We weren't certain we were going to do it, but we made those initial uh, forays and talked to Bob's attorney. We went to Seguin. We went to the Kingsbury Opry where Bob's strange act was performed, uh, which you have to, you'll have to see that in the documentary. And we talked to Bob's brother. And at that point, we realized we had enough to do a film. So we set off on this journey. I had seen a movie called Becoming Bond about George Lazenby. I was actually covering it for the Austin Chronicle and was there and met George Lazenby. He was kind of the the guy who was a one-time Bond and then turned it down after that. And that film was done with Lazenby sitting in a chair with a nice backdrop, well lit. And the other half of the film was recreations from his life with an actor who didn't particularly look like him, but was a good actor. Uh, so when we started doing this film, I thought, yeah, that's kind of what we need to do. Uh, because Bob's dead, Rondo's dead. Bob and Bob and Rondo, by the way, never met. They lived in different time frames. Uh, so we set about recreating scenes from their lives, uh, and that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it because I mean, because uh, I, I, I was one of the questions I had. I was really interested in, in how you went about the recreations, like because it was all uh, there's a lot to achieve there, um, particularly yeah. with Rondo's makeup which I thought was done excellently. And I, I just, oh, yeah. honestly, I really enjoyed the the recreations quite quite a bit. Oh, well, um, thanks. If people either like good. them or hate them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, everybody's a critic. <laughs> yeah, it's a low-budget film. And so with recreations, we hit them one at a time. Uh, you know, I'd have to gather the money to pay for them. Each one was a mini movie, you know, with different time frames. And we had a... There's a city, Taylor, Texas, a small town, uh, and they had all these older buildings. There's the, the mayor pro tem was part of a car club, a classic car club, and I could call him and he would enlist people to show up. So we're showing Rondo meeting his wife in 1934, Tampa, Florida. And we have, that's when we've, the first big scene that we did, a lot of extras, and suddenly a squadron of Model T's comes down the road and we know we're going to make it. It was amazing. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, it, it was fantastic. And and the buildings were just right. And, and you know, had to get the costumes. It's a, it's an interesting thing to do. Low budget filmmaking, which means me as producer, I'm, I'm gathering a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, I'm writing the scene, unless it's something that was already written. There, there are, Scenes that are recreations using actors that are just the words of uh, old journalists. You know, uh, I somebody commented in one thing about 
a, a scene that sounded like it was a bad uh, gangster movie from the 40s? And the answer is it was written in the 1940s <laughs> by the guy in the scene, uh, you know. We just I adore it. so much old, all the old timey newspapermen talk that's yeah. in this movie. Yeah, it's uh, so so that's much. Yeah, it's all real. Um, and as far as the the uh, the mask, there's a guy Paul Smith who's a genius, and we got lucky. Frankly, Paul Smith worked with Bob Burns uh, and could basically create anything, and so that the mask was created specifically for our actor. Uh, you know, they had to make a cast of his face and then from that make a make a solid cast. And then from that, he worked on the on the mask itself, working off of old photos. So it's, it, you know, uh, he's been done before. Obviously, R Rick Baker uh, did the the homage to him in The Rocketeer. Uh, but this is created just for our film. The same thing with with aging Mayhattan. Uh which I thought is just a fantastic job. I think some people don't realize that's the same actress doing it. Yeah, that took uh, me a couple of scenes to catch on to, actually. Yeah, the yeah, old age too. makeup was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. That's also why she's wearing a scarf at the bottom, so you, <laughs> so you hide the seam. Uh, yeah, you and she's in a Back to the Future problem where everyone has gills suddenly. <laughs> right, that's it. <laughs> that's it. How long did it take to apply Rhonda's makeup on every filming day? It, it took a few hours, uh, and he was he was there. Paul Smith was there for every scene that involved Rondo, and he was very meticulous about it. It had to be perfect. Uh, there was the difficulty of motion. We had to get the actor to exaggerate his mouth, you know. Uh, and I think early early scenes we didn't do it as well, and and the scenes are out of order from what we shot, obviously. Uh, but there's somewhere he was still learning that again. Low budget filmmaking, man. We're just going in there and doing it, uh, which is kind of, and that's kind of my advice for people who want to make a movie. Too often they sit around and wait until the time is right and they have all the money. You just need to kind of go do it. Start yeah, making some shorts, you know? Yeah, it's do it gorilla style. Yeah. The passion, the passion of what you're doing comes through. Like, that's why I really oh, like about the recreations is I think. I think there may be uh, for people who maybe wouldn't be like used to that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, would maybe be a little bit like thrown off at first, but if you just let, there's a charm to them. Yeah. Um, especially like the, the Rondo recreations, I think are great because it is, it's a mini movie of Rondo's life. If you just pay attention to those and Bob's recreations, there's, it's like Bob's personality is in them. So, yeah. Uh, and because of that passion to like capture that to me it elevates um a lot of the limitations you had yeah and, and the deal was is is like i said with becoming bond the actor not particularly looking that much like him uh i went to to the head of a drama program in austin texas and said i need someone to play him who have you got and he said i've got one guy who looks more like him one guy who's a better actor because I'd seen Becoming Bond, I knew, give me the better actor. And Ryan Williams, who, who plays Bob, I feel like, again, as it went along, he totally got into, Bob was a bit of a goofball. Uh, yeah. he, he liked puns. Uh, his, his, uh, he was a graphic designer, and his office was called RH Factor for Rondo Hatton. So there were always Easter eggs, you know, around for him. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it worked out well. 
Oh yeah, I his honestly, yeah, he doesn't look anything like him, but the performance almost becomes uncanny by the end of the film. Where yeah, yeah, I, I feel like you could fool me into thinking that's uh, that was actually Bob. And that's so impressive. Voice and yeah. That's so impressive considering you're seeing that performance side by side with actual footage of Bob throughout the movie. Yeah. So that's acting, asking a lot uh, of an yeah. actor, especially playing that character throughout different eras of his life in varying stages of makeup. That's uh, yeah. did such an incredible job there. I was really impressed. And there, and we had the the weird spots where we had access to the footage from the very first documentary done about Chainsaw by David Gregory, uh, who's Severin Films. Uh, and I thought, well, it's too jarring to have the real Bob in this part. And so we used Bob's words and had our actors say them. And so, again, that's stuff that, that you know, that's real. Uh, but it just seemed to work best for that scene, if that makes any sense, you know? Oh, definitely. Uh, and, and it also made it easier because David Gregory said, well, I said, can we use this stuff? And he said, well, it's Bob's words. You know, you're not using my video, so you don't even really need my permission. So that was kind of cool, too. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering, that goes into a, to a question I had, which is how long did it take you to, like, gather all of the materials and research for this? Because it's while it's a very, um, in a way, narrow subject because it's just Bob, mm. but it's from so many different sources and you have to track down so many different people, you know, the more something's kind of unknown, the harder it is to, to nail down. Yeah. Some things just grow organically as we go, things that we didn't know. Uh, obviously we had to go out to, we had to go out to Hollywood. We talked to Stuart Gordon, the director of reanimator, who's unfortunately no longer with us. And he was a great guy uh, and really liked Bob. And he, he talked about, uh, going to thrift stores with Bob. He would come to Texas and go to thrift stores with him because it was so amazing. Bob could create something out of nothing. And that's what he made his career on. Uh, so, you know, it, it, our production took about three years total. Uh, you know, that, that uh, getting background, generating interviews and everything was all part of that. Uh, but we, were, we would have weird moments like we interviewed this guy who'd worked with Bob and he said in an offhand way in the interview, did Bob ever tell you about the time as a kid, he saw a man die? And we said, no, but now we have to film that. Uh, so we turned around and filmed that. Uh, and we became fearless in the belief that we could pull stuff off. So that was another scene that was difficult to pull off because uh, I, I didn't want to get permits to, to, from the city for a street to film on a street. So we knew this one street was actually owned by a company. And so we got permission from them instead and we're able to do that. Oh, wow. And again, old cars, you know, uh, and I haven't talked about it enough, but we have a soundtrack that is largely songs by a guy named Ferris Norala. Ferris, uh, originally from El Paso, he and his brother were big in the Dallas music scene as the Norala brothers. And, I, and this is one of the deals with making your own movie. You get to decide stuff like that. And there's a song called Problematico by him that I thought was very appropriate for Bob. And also it's a song I loved. And so I wanted it for the closing credits. In the end, we used 10 songs by him throughout the film. And, and I just, you know, I'm just a big fan of his music. He's probably somebody most people have not heard of, but he's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, think, I think he lives in St. Louis now. 
the music adds a lot. I, I really did like the music used. So I actually didn't know it was just just one guy. Mainly, not, not everything. Uh, in fact, we reused a little bit of music from Danger God. Not much, but a little bit. And those guys get did some additional stuff for us as well. Two guys, Rob Larson and uh, Jacob Pierce, did all our music for Danger God. And they, and this, you know, again, small budget. Both those guys are in the film. So uh, the tower scene, the tower shooting scene. Rob Rob Larson is the guy with blood spurting out of his arm. Uh, that and I should probably explain that we we both Bob Burns and Toby Hooper, the director of Chainsaw, were there the day in 1966 that the University of Texas Tower shooting occurred. Charles Whitman climbed to the top of this tower at, with a lot of scopes and weapons and and started shooting people around campus from up on high. It was one of the first real shootings like that, first real school shootings. Uh, and to me, we had to film that because it said something about them. You've got these yeah. two guys who are the real forces behind Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Bob for the look, you know, uh, Toby for the conception. Uh, and they were both there that day and they saw this. Uh, and Toby Hooper did see a, a police officer shot. It, it's exactly like in our scene. So it's crazy. Yeah, I think I had heard Toby talk about that in a, a few documentaries, but I didn't know Bob was was also there. But it explains, it explains I, I a lot. Yeah, yeah, I didn't either uh, until I talked to his brother. Uh, and he, he's, his brother said it to me offhand, too. He was talking about Bob designed the sets for the summer musical in Austin, Texas, outdoor amphitheater situation and he said well he was doing it that year i know he i know he was there in 1966 because that's the day of the tower shooting and bob said he wasn't going to be on campus but he was and we're like oh okay so that led us in that direction people are throwing out this the strangest uh off-handed remarks about bob's <laughs> yeah. life yeah but that was really important i think uh, yeah, that and Bob witnessing someone die when he was a kid. Like, I, it's kind of crazy to me that that wasn't something that was like baked into the film really early on and just came about through interviews because it's so important yeah. to the overall st story arc of Bob and the documentary. Yeah. And, and approaching the documentary like this, a lot of people may just be interested in, in uh, how did you make the mask for Chainsaw Massacre? How did you get the bones for the set? that kind of thing. But I'm really more interested in the human story. And that's where this Rondo, Rondo Hatton and Bob Burns thing really comes up. That's what I saw from the beginning was Bob as this normal looking guy who was weird. And, and I mean, it as a compliment. Uh, and Rondo as a very normal guy who, who was odd looking because of his condition. And so that was the driving force from the beginning, that notion. Yeah. That's something I really wanted to commend you for actually. Um, was not making the focus on Bob or Rondo's films, not so much. If you talked about them, it was how it relates to them personally, but it was never about that. Because I was almost afraid as the documentary was going on that it would kind of fall into that. Yeah. But I, and, and I was getting more into the story of these people. And okay. it's, you know, it, it would have been a, a very easy and, you know, quite frankly, cheap to just like, oh, p people can hear... We'll watch interviews about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Creeper, all day. So let's make a documentary yeah. about that. So we just had to, to avoid we that. We had to make sure it wasn't really a. It. Yeah, we had to make sure it wasn't a Texas Chainsaw Massacre documentary. 
uh, it because that's a real pull as well. And, you know, we talk to most of the living folks, uh, the living cast members. Uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't talk to the meat hook lady, uh, <laughs> but I should have. Uh, ter- uh, Terry, uh, I'm forgetting her last name. The, Say the, that for the sequel. Yeah, that's right. Maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, was it was it difficult to get people close to Bob to talk about him though? Not uh, really. Uh, really. We, you know, we had to uh, gain some trust, uh, and there was a guy who ended up being our associate producer, uh, Ed Tutat. Ed Tutat is an interesting story himself because Ed Tutat is uh, currently ranked number six all time on game show winnings. Uh, <laughs> And and okay. Ed financed a lot of Bob's <laughs> projects that he did in Austin when when Bob was making his own films. These these kind of failures that were never really released, like his film Scream Test. Uh, and I had to kind of get Ed's trust. But then he he, he you know fell into it head on. Uh, he is no longer with us. He, during the the production of the film, he developed a brain tumor and died. Oh, uh, and so Damn. it's. The film is is uh, dedicated to him. So yeah, I guess I had to on that level, uh, you know. And the same with his brother. Uh, and I ended up talking to two of his three brothers. I didn't talk to one. Uh, and they're kind of spread out in, uh, geographically. I got lucky that Bob's brother, who is a psychotherapist, uh, happened to be visiting from Canada, and we caught him just as he was in town for a, a day, which was very cool. He's he's the one who diagnosed Bob as having an attachment disorder. Uh, you know, we kind of go into that stuff. That that uh, there's a a hint that the Burns family, the Burns brothers, uh, that uh, you know Aspergers or some form of autism uh, was present. You yeah. know, I don't know about all of them, but uh, Bob certainly had had something like that. I was very taken by that moment where I, I believe it was Bob's nephew who said, I'm the only one in the family who's been diagnosed with anything, but we sure do have a lot of eccentric loners in our family tree. And that yes. that speaks to me so much because like everybody either has a family like that or knows a family like that where there's clearly a history of untreated mental illness going on and it just kind of gets hand waved away by the community as, oh, he's a hermit or, oh, he, yeah. he's just a little weird. You just, you get to learn how to deal with them and it's fine. Yeah. And that was very unexpected. Uh, we had talked to Fred Burns, Bob's brother, and we were in uh, Bob's nephew's apartment, which was very sparse, very sparsely furnished, had a big tower of CDs just stacked on one on top of each other. And we said, well, why don't we talk to you for a minute? And then he said this, and it's like, oh, well, that's going in the film. <laughs> you know, that's that's where filmmaking like this is is a process of discovery. Uh, you know, I, just going off of that, I guess this is more of like, um, and you don't have to answer this, but more of like a personal opinion of, of of looking back. Do you feel like I don't know Bob's family or or close circle could have could have reached out to him better, particularly with you know his childhood and. I, I think they did the best they could. You know, I, I think we're all dealing with our stuff. And here's the deal about Bob. And, and this is said, at it, it, we have a little clip of his memorial service. And the guy basically says, Bob had a ton of friends. He just, uh, he just couldn't get close to people. But he had a yeah. ton of friends. And he would phone them all the time. Uh, 
We played at Cinema Wasteland in Cleveland, and the guy in charge of it said that Bob would call him once a week. And he had just met the guy a couple of times. His, the uh, final, Bob's final appearance was at Cinema Wasteland in 2014, where he brought a lot of the Chainsaw cast folks. And they, a lot of them discovered the film festival, basically. They discovered the ability, the cons, that uh, they could go to these and it would be a good experience for them and maybe they'd make a little money. Uh, so, so he had a lot of friends, you know. Um, it's a strange thing. I, I, I'm sure that some of them think they could have done more, but I don't know that they could, you know. He was a very social, antisocial person, if that makes any sense. Um, no, it's it's difficult when the person doesn't really want to reach out in that in that kind of way. Yeah, and I think he wasn't capable of it. That's the big deal, you know. He, uh, Gary Kent was his good friend, and he told Gary that he felt like he was incapable of love, and that's that's pretty tough. Yeah, it was that was heartbreaking to to hear. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? You know, I I don't have an answer. And then you played against Rondo, who's just full of love. Yeah, Rondo, who had this condition, and he said this in his last interview. He talked about it, that uh, he could go hide from the world, but instead he chose to embrace it and go be right in your face and not worry about it. Though I think he was worried about, you know, scaring children. That scene that we have uh, with him with the child in the, in the post office, totally true. That's, that's been spoken about many times. Uh, wow. But, you know... He chose to embrace it, and people really liked him. That's the impression I get, that Rondo was a great guy. You know, he, he was a soldier himself, and he would take World War II soldiers into his house, uh, you know, folks who, who had been damaged by the war. Uh, you know, and he was, he was living an interesting life. He did not think of himself as an, as an actor. He thought of himself as a writer. And I actually have a script, a copy of a script that he wrote, uh, that maybe somebody will do something with one day. Oh, but, you know, kind of, yeah, yeah. That was something that was completely unexpected. Like I don't, yeah. I didn't know a whole lot about Rondo Hatton, but I just kind of assumed like, okay, he had a condition, he made some money out of it in Hollywood for a couple of years, and that's his story. Finding out that Rondo was a journalist and a pillar of his community, right? Yeah. I, I would have given anything to see Rondo on the beat, his his little newsman hat. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. I mean, he was, Tampa was, and and this is stuff we didn't go as much into, Tampa was a dangerous place, had a lot of crime in that that period. And Rondo was originally writing about uh, news. He was writing about crime. He was kind of into it. But but in the end, he went towards sports because that's his big interest. He wanted to be an athlete. And he was a good one before the acromegaly hit. So, did you um, ever have an interest in kind of revisiting Rondo, but as a singular subject? No, I'd, I'd like to see somebody else do that. Uh, I I am looking. I would like to do at least a short film about the Rondo from my neck of the woods in Austin, Texas. There's a guy, and his name was Hans Hans Hartkopf, and Hans was. It, when you get acromegaly, it depends on the time period that you get it in your life. By the time Rondo got it, his body was fully developed. So his hands, feet, and his face continued to grow because of it. He was still a pretty small guy. They had to pad him up for the movies. But uh, uh, Hans Hartkopf 
was huge all over. And he was a, it was a car racer and had a shop in Austin down in prime area. They said his, that you could put your whole fist through a ring that he had one, on one of his fingers. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but, uh, and I'd kind of like to do something about him, a, a different story. And I've, I've had some contact with family members of that guy. I think somebody should do uh, a standalone, you know, feature film about Rondo, big budget. I'd like to see what happens with it, you know. Me too, and I would yeah. not be jealous of it. I, you know, I would encourage somebody to go do that. But I think they need a good budget to, to really do something. Uh, Bob wanted to do that. That was his goal. He said that Sandra Bullock would be the right person to, to play May Hatton. So, and his script, I didn't. His, his script was inspiration in many ways, but we didn't follow his script, which went in a lot more to that crime beat stuff that we were talking about. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if Mayhatton would be if Sandra Bullock would be the right person now for her. Uh, I'm not sure who it would be. Has anyone ever looked into making Bob's script in the past? I think they did at some time in the past, uh, but probably nobody even knows about it anymore. You know, I've got, a, I've still got my copy. So yeah, damn, I would love to see somebody shop that around. And yeah, that's one of the difficulties with this film that I knew from the beginning would be a difficulty, which is that a lot of people want more Rondo and a lot of people want more Bob. Uh, and I kind of had to stick with my notion of the film and we, and this will not be apparent to anybody, but we really make an effort. The film is a bit of a collage. And we had uh, color-coded post-it notes on the wall of the editing office, and I kept moving them around uh, because I didn't want you to ever reach a point where you said, where's Rondo or where's Bob? I wanted it to be seamless, that you would go back and forth. And, you know, there would be the moments that are both of them, uh, again, even though they never met. Uh, so it, it's a challenge. Uh, it's whether people buy into that, that conception or not, you know. I think I it has a really good balance. Oh, well, thanks. Um, yeah. And what, one thing, you know, you were talking earlier about, uh, we, were, we were talking about things just coming up. Um, this is one of the deals, too, about being an independent filmmaker. I watched the movie Third, The Third Man with Orson Welles, and there's this scene in the French sewage system, and there are these, all, all these brick walls in the sewer, and I thought it was really beautiful. And I told my editor, uh, I was saying, I'd really like to recreate that. And he told me about a place in Austin that looked kind of like it. Uh, and it was a little bit shady, a shady area. And they were having a special event near there with lights at Christmas time. And so the beginning of the film is our version of that tunnel. And then the end is the lights. And, and Rondo walked in through the series of lights and they blue lights. They blinked one after another and then they went out all at once. Totally, uh, you know, lucky for us. And we were, we were doing guerrilla filmmaking that day. There were tons of tourists running around that area, and we had to hold them off for just a couple of minutes to shoot that shot. In the end, I found out that the third man was filmed in a studio, uh, <laughs> which was funny, you know. But it's kind of fun to be able to do that, that thing, you know, where you say, yeah, this is really pretty. I, I want to do something like that. I felt it was the mood of Rondo. Yeah, too, it's beautiful. You know? I, I kind of can't believe that was like so guerrilla style. It yeah. felt so you know, impactful and, and perfectly planned. Yeah, I wish, yeah. 
Yeah, I can't say that things are always planned. A lot is, you know, the the, the broad storyline is planned, but things come up as you go. Like, that's, it that's, makes that's it more perfect. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like, oh, it's just there's something almost in the air in the making of the of the film that really pulls it all together. Plus, it's just it's more creativity. You know, you want to go out and set about doing a particular a particular idea, a particular thing, and then what is presented in front of you that you can you can form and meld into what you want. Yeah, like that uh, University of Texas tower shooting. We could not shoot at the, at the UT campus. We would never get permission. Uh, so we found what was a closed high school, and it was being renovated. And I think much of that is done now. It was being renovated into being a home for a bunch of different small businesses. So we were able to get that, uh, you know, fairly inexpensively, and it matched so well. I mean, we have some shots that are from the actual tower shooting. There's one of a staircase, and it matches our staircase at this place. It's just amazing, you know. We we continually got lucky. Yeah, I would not have thought, uh, have thought unless uh, you pointed it out that that wasn't just shot at a university during like the summer or something. Yeah. Yeah, we couldn't, it, it, too much trouble, too much work to get permission for that. So, you know, and they've got good lawyers. So we, could, we couldn't go gorilla on that. Uh, you know, a lot of other stuff, but not on that one. You don't want to oppose the school board. Right. The, uh, the regents, yeah. <laughs> How, how's the, uh, you know, since it's, since it's been released, because, uh, you know, obviously it took you a couple of years, um, but how's it? It's, I know it's been playing a lot of festivals. How has it been getting like received? Are you, uh, you've been happy with what you've been hearing? I, I have, yeah. And there've been there's been some amazing reviews. There's people who don't like it, uh, but we've had some amazing reviews and people who who really get it, uh, get what we're trying to accomplish. We uh, we it, it's weird because I'm from Austin and we had trouble screening in Austin. We we didn't we didn't get into festivals in Austin. We kept. Part of that is because like uh, Fantastic Fest canceled. And then by the time they came back, you know, the COVID stuff really got us. By the time they came came back, we'd already had a, a Texas premiere, which they required. Uh, and so we had a really hard time. And then we ended up somehow falling into a week-long screening at the Galaxy Theater in Austin, which turned out to be a great place. And it, it's it's not a, it wasn't a four wall. It was them actually picking up the film and, and paying us for for screening it, which was both, uh, you know, really heartening and scary because we had to try to fill seats yeah. and it's not easy. We had very little notice to try to, and that was right before the, the, uh, streaming release. So that was helpful, but you know, o- overall, it seems like the reaction is good. It's a strange thing. You really don't know. Uh, we get, I'm, we're getting more things that are, that are wide. Um, we were, had a review on public radio in, Southern California that just came out. Uh, for some reason, we've got some traction in California. We're uh, in an alternate weekly in the Oakland area. Uh, a nice piece there. So uh, we're picking up steam. You know, yeah. It's- uh, hopefully, it picks up picks up a lot because I think I, I love to see it. You know, hit something like uh, Shutter because I think with um, I would too. Yeah, with horror fans especially, it was a lot struggle with you know personal issues or mental health problems and you know know these figures but but don't know them that way and i i think they're gonna 
they would find themselves. I, I could see this really being something that plays the overall community in a big way and, and really takes off. Yeah, it, it's tough. You know, with an independent uh, film, you are shouting in a crowded room. Yeah. So, you you know, at some level, you just have to be lucky that people pick up on it. And we live in a world that's so segmented as it is when it comes to media. You know, pe- different people listening to, listening and watching different things uh, that it can be difficult to. But you just do the best you can and, and keep pushing it. You know, that's all we can do. Uh, um, what, what's something you do you want people to like really take away from the film? Um, you know, I I would like people to take away the, the sense of creativity. You know, I think that applies to both Rondo and Bob that you can go and make stuff. It's, it applies to us in making this film. You, you can go make stuff. And I think to me, my, the joy in my life is creating things. Uh, and so, you know, there's satisfaction in that. I think this film is also a love letter to horror fans. Uh, it's been called that in it, by a couple of different reviewers. Um, you know, there, there is this fandom. I'm, so uh, continue to be so amazed by chainsaw fans and how rabid they are about this film and they're they're really rabid about bob burns they want to know how he made those masks there's, there's a lot of people trying to recreate it all the time uh and they're and they're really nice people horror fans are nice people you know i i don't know if people would expect that or not but they're generally they're, they're the best uh, probably the best uh like film fan community around yeah yeah i think so yeah and particularly these chainsaw folks. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what it is about chainsaw that it endures to such a high level, but it does. You know, I think a lot of that goes to Bob Burns. I think a a lot of it probably goes to Wayne Bell for the sound in that film, which is so creepy. You know, and you know, as we explore in the film, Bob and Toby Hooper went round and round about their view of this film and Bob with the meat hook scene, Bob told to told Toby that uh, there should be no blood in that scene, because if you do the, if you show a lot of blood, people are going to be wondering about the effect uh, instead of just being creeped out in the moment. That was his philosophy about art direction in general, that the art direction should be invisible. It should just be creeping you out. You shouldn't be looking at it and saying, Oh, that's cool. I like the way they did that. You know? That was fascinating to learn that came from Bob because honestly, that I mean, it's something that everyone always brings up with Chainsaw. Yeah, is the meat hook scene, and and then you start thinking about okay, that's Bob's philosophy. You start thinking about all the other movies he's worked on, and oh, all of that lines up. It's so, and then everyone looks at Texas Chainsaw as oh, it's you know, it's the bloodiest movie ever made, and there's and it's not bloody at all. a drop of blood in the entire picture. Yeah. But it's that, incredibly creepy, you know? And that's, I guess that's kind of, in many ways, the tragedy of a good art director is they are invisible. And in many ways, they end up being the unsung heroes of movie, ma- movie making, especially in horror. Like, it's crazy that we're in kind of a horror documentary boom right now with a, covering oh. a lot of niche subjects. I think this is the only documentary about an art director I've ever seen. It may be. It may. It may be the first one anywhere. I don't know. Uh, you know, they have to be important, and I think Bob's important enough to to rate the, the closer examination. I don't. I don't know who else would be, but there's probably somebody out there. It's probably something I don't know about. 
I think art direction and films generally are, are kind of unsung as far as like examination go. Yeah. And I just think art directors are often really overlooked. You know, they're overlooked from people look at the director, the uh, makeup artists, uh, you know, they'll look at like production designers, but there's art direction is like such a specific talent and trait that yeah. when it's, when it's right, and it blends perfectly into the directorial style of the film, which I think is is what made also the look and feel of Texas Chainsaw work so well, is those two, it is Hooper's directorial style and Bob's art direction blended yeah. into this, like, just cacophony of creepiness and just grunginess. That... And I think, I think you're looking also at the fact that Hooper had been doing this since he was a kid. He'd been making horror films. Uh, one of the people that I felt I had to include, because I, I, I was lucky to track him down, was his childhood friend, and they made movies together. And that, to me, was kind of fascinating, just to talk to this guy about who Toby Hooper was as a kid. Uh, and there is a book being written about him, about Toby Hooper, that I think will be kind of interesting, that uh, talks about some of those early films that he made. But yeah, he was, you know... His dad managed motel or hotels in Texas, and uh, Toby would take advantage of that location and shoot stuff there. And he moved around a little bit in high school, so I don't know if he had a whole lot of friends. But he was in his head and and had friends like uh, like Wayne, the guy I'm talking about, and could recruit them to go make movies and get in trouble because they did get stopped by the the cops for you know. A, a bloodied guy in the street, like, <laughs> which I thought was great. But I just got lucky to track him down, to track down Wayne. I used Facebook to find him. I sent him a note and said, are you this guy? And he said, yes, I am. <laughs> and he's a was a pilot, so he actually flew in to Austin for me to interview oh, Wow. Him. Yeah, so very cool. Yeah, you got some, you got some really interesting figures for, for the talking heads in this. And just yeah. all, all kinds of different different folks um and i just like how each one brought like a different facet of the individual they were talking about like it was kind of like very specific to them and, and I, I i dig that about certain documentaries whenever it's well this friend only really ever saw kind of like this side so we have this friend who only ever saw this side and then you can kind of like put them back to back and you get like this larger picture that like kind of no one knew like two puzzle pieces going together yeah it's a challenge. I mean, uh, you know, what what you leave out may matter as much as what you you focus on, because you've got to trim down. We we left out a whole lot about Bob Burns, uh, other things about him that you know his brother said. Well, where's the genealogy? Because Bob Burns was really into genealogy, which kind of fit. He was estranged a lot from his family, but he was into the the story of his family history. That makes a lot of sense. Huh? Yeah, and he made a he made a uh, he made a video that he sold about genealogy, and again, this is all in the days before ancestry dot com and easy you know Google searches and all that kind of thing. His his whole search for Rondo Hatton was done through the U.S. mail and phone calls because he didn't have the stuff that we take for granted now. Yeah, it's amazing. Make to think an that entire narrative that. picture about just Bob searching for Rondo. Yeah. <laughs> Because I mean, at yeah. that time, I mean, so much of it was just boot, like 
boots on the street, sending out letters. Like, you had to be a detective to be a hardcore fan back then. Like, that, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And so he just sent letters out. Uh, we have a restored old theater in Austin, and he would go there when films were playing and uh, set up his camera, I, I guess with permission. I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, and find Rondo in the background of all these movies. I think if you look on IMDb, they have like maybe 60 credits for Rondo. I think he did a lot more. He, his, most of his career was these small parts in the background, sometimes just really weird ones, you know, and, and uh, often in high, fairly high profile films of that period. Uh, so there's probably still some searching to do to, to find Rondo in the background. And I, and I was fascinated by Bob's search and what that said about him. His search for Rondo. It's spiritual almost for, for Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think he was a completist, you know, so you, you see some of those actual photos of uh, that he shot in the theater of Rondo as a small part when he sits down with Mayhattan. Uh, those are, those are real stuff. We had access to, to Bob's Rondo photo collection for a while. Uh, had to give it back eventually. But uh, that was kind of fascinating. He had tons yeah, I, of stuff. Just tons. Yeah, I could not imagine just sitting down and going through Bob's things. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, they're out there. He, he, he prepared a box. He was an organized guy, and he had a Rondo box. Uh, when, when he died, there was this box. And, and I don't know if it's gone there, but it's supposed to go to, to, a, to some museum in Florida. Uh, you know, interesting stuff. I'm glad, and I'm glad we had access to it. It helped a whole lot. I saw some uh, pictures after watching the documentary. I was delving into stuff and uh, of, a, of uh, a rondo party that Bob threw. Right. And like this beautiful big sheet cake that Bob took black icing and then drew rondo on it. Yeah. And <laughs> Like it was just like crazy this. to see see Rondo on like this big cake and like a, like it, this beautiful piece of art for just yeah. like this random party. Right, Bob was known for his interesting parties, uh, and that was that was Rondo Hatton's hundredth birthday party, uh, which was a big deal. So big deal for Bob. But he he his house was full of interesting objects, a lot that he had created. Uh, you know. You'd see the the armchair from Chainsaw over in the corner. You'd see the uh, deep throat pinball machine that Bob created, uh, which has shown up in a few films, uh, and which shows up in our documentary. The actual uh, pinball machine does. Oh, that so, was the original. Wow. Yeah, I told you about the guy Ed Tutant, and I we got his confidence, and he showed us around his house, and in the laundry room area there was the pinball machine, and we're like, you know. And Gunnar Hansen's uh, memoir, he writes about interviewing with Bob to be Leatherface. And he talks about playing that pinball machine, that it was there in the office. <laughs> and so, you know, I said, okay, we have to shoot this, but I don't want to move the pinball machine. We have to shoot it right here. <laughs> and so I had to go collect bones to fill, <laughs> fill Bob's office. So, I, you know, I did. I, I went and, uh, You got know. to play Bob for a little while. Yeah. Uh, I, I bought some like off, off of uh, Craigslist uh, and then I got them from other people who lived out in the sticks and we just kind of filled up his office as best we could. And there are also, there, there are a bunch of little Bob Easter eggs for people who, who are big fans. Uh, 
Bob did a show called Memories of Meat, where he showed off his his stuff, all his props from Chainsaw. He did this on the University of Texas campus not long after the film came out. And we have on the wall of his office the poster from that, which probably is beyond collectible. Yeah, I've only I'd seen say. one other one, and that's in the Austin History Center. Wow. Uh, to have gone to that. Yeah, that would have been crazy. I was thinking about earlier today, like, if if Bob Burns were still with us now, he would have the greatest YouTube channel of all time. <laughs> Just showing off that's, all that's of his cool. prompts and his cool things he made and doing weird yeah. videos. The internet was kind of made for guys like Bob. Yeah, it's too bad he didn't stick around. I think he would have created a whole lot more interesting stuff. That's in, that's an interesting notion. Uh, yeah, I think he would definitely be that guy. He'd have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly, I, I I look at a lot of uh, a lot of people like that. It's like if they were if they were just here now, they'd have kind of more of the outlet that they were really striving for that wasn't yeah. afforded to them. Like. And hell, the ability to actually make that Rondo movie that he wanted to make in, in, in some form, you know, with with more of the Internet age that we're in now versus, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, really in mid 2000s and stuff. Yeah, much more accessible. I think I think he would like it. I wish he'd stuck around, you know. Yeah, uh, it's a shame. And he was a nice guy. I, I you know, I knew him in the last years of his life. Uh, we tried to put on a film festival in a suburb of Austin named Pflugerville with a silent P, Puff Pflugerville. Uh, and he created stuff for publicity as we tried to, to get this thing together. It never quite happened. But, but he made up a special costume just for that, uh, which was really cool. It's a film director being carried by a nurse. It's somewhat <laughs> similar to the one in the, in the film with the bathtub uh, and probably a, a rejiggering of that. You know, but it was cool. That bathtub costume was fantastic. It is. And he could do those things. You know, when he when he died, people went into his house and they opened a closet and they saw the the mannequin that was part of that costume. And they thought they were seeing something really weird, (laughs) a weird sex toy or something. (laughs) No, that's just Bob. That's just Bob making stuff. Uh, that would have made Bob so happy to know that was the reaction. Right. I think it would. Yeah. I think that's my favorite story in that entire movie is Bob having to swear that all of those blow up dolls in the attic are for work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy story. And that, and that little short film has never been released anywhere. So that yeah. chunk you see is about it. We have to put out a Blu-ray so that we can put stuff like that on it. Uh, oh, and, yeah. And, Maybe his unreleased film as yeah, well. I was going to ask about that. Like, is that, like, I know it hasn't been released in any official capacity. Is that just sitting on a shelf somewhere? Like, could that be released? Um, it's uh, it's just videotape. There's There are like eight or ten copies of it on videotape. Uh, and, I, and I have possession of those at this time. And, and the guy, Ed Tutant, who died, he was the sole uh, financer of that. So I think that uh, with his family's support, and they would certainly support it, we could put it on the Blu-ray. Yeah, so that's a special be feature cool. ever. Yeah. 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 Like We're a little sticker entirely. on there that says, uh, funded by real quiz show money. Right. It's true, yeah. Yeah, Ed Tutant's a fascinating guy, too. Somebody sent me a script that they were writing about Ed Tutant <laughs> and the game show world. 
he he was an engineer uh, who got totally into the game show stuff and then figured out a way to win. You know, it, it was who wants to be a millionaire that, that put him up to those high winnings. He lost and then he got, he talked them into giving him a second chance and he won that time <laughs> uh, and won more than a million, like 1.8 million. So the, the, the game show circuit world is like this. It's, it's like a, it's like a secrets society almost like there's so many strange yeah. figures throughout like all of history of game shows yeah and and there are these these people who go to these go to bars and play trivia and do that every week and they're totally into it it's just about mastering it and winning uh and that was the deal with with ed uh, you know so it's it was nice to have him involved in the film and i wish he would he were still around as well he's got a story he's definitely got a story yeah Bob Burns seemed to like his friend group seemed to be like the X Men of strange people. Right. There's so many. I like that description. There's so many colorful characters that you meet by proxy just through this documentary. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, and other ones that we cut out. You know, there's there's a lot of other characters uh, that had to end up on the cutting room floor, unfortunately. Who will be on that Blu-ray when it comes out? You know? Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I just want to, I would love to see an entire book about the weeks Bob spent teaching Vanessa Redgrave to have a Southern accent. Where is that movie? And the deal is Bob, Bob talked like this. And so, and, and it's not a Texas accent as I know it. I don't know what his accent was. Uh, and but Vanessa Redgrave is totally doing Bob Burns. I don't know if that's clear or not. It explains a lot. Uh. Yeah, because she talks like this, like Bob Burns, and you know it. It's crazy. Bob, Bob talks like somebody putting on a voice. It's what's. It's what even like threw me off about um, the recreations at first until we like saw Bob. Like it, yeah. it seems like Bob's always playing a character because of his voice. <laughs> You know, and maybe he was in, in a certain way, you know, and he, he was an actor. That was in in many ways. I think Bob saw himself as an actor. You know, we have the whole thing and he, he starred in Confessions of a Serial Killer. And we have that whole thing about that is that they chose him out of happenstance because they lost their guy. Uh, but the truth is they were getting a guy who had been trained, who had a college degree in drama. Uh, and who was, you know, successful at it in that early age. He just couldn't find a way to make a career with it. So, he, you know, he he had also been a set designer when he was in high school. And I think that may have led him forward more than anything else, that, you know, he could he could create anything, and he knew that. He also was very smart, and he knew that. And it, it that could make him a pain in the ass as well, you know, that he was that way. But, yeah. He was a creative genius, and I, I and I hope people will from this film will will learn about him, and you know learn about creativity in general. Yeah, and it it does it does that job well. So hopefully, hopefully more and more people you know, take that lesson and 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 find the film. Yeah. Um, so we just um, don't want to take up too much more of your time, but um, we've talked a lot about the film. But how did you uh, start in documentaries? Because you've you've had a very lauded career in journalism. And now you made yeah. uh, two docs and, you know, do you have anything else coming? I have been, uh, my, my COVID time was spent working on a book that is also film related. It's oh. called The Contortionist. 
And it's about uh, three sisters from West Texas in the 1930s and 40s who, who escaped poverty by a chance encounter with a family of contortionists who taught them to do it. Their name was the Ross sisters. And you have, you have seen, yeah, you have seen the video. I, I guarantee you there's a video on YouTube that went viral a couple of years back and it's of them doing their act to a song called solid potato salad. Uh, look that oh, up. Yeah. I think I do, do you know that? that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I believe I do. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I was obsessed with finding out what happened to them and I did, I found out what happened to them. And I, I, uh, and near the end, I'm going to Denver on Monday where I'm a part of the, uh, Lighthouse Writers Workshops book project. It's a two-year program where they kind of assist you to, to complete your book. And that's what I needed. Uh, so uh, I have my first draft done and I'm about to dive into to revisions, pretty major revisions. Uh, and that may have been my next film, but I, it just seemed out of my budget. So, and, and I realized there are, there are young <clears throat> female contortionists out there they're actually quite a few, you know, they're all, they're all YouTube stars now or, uh, TikTok. Uh, but there's a bunch of them, but more than I expected. So I hope that becomes a film, but it probably won't be by me. It'll I just be a book. honestly can't wait for the book. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it, and it's full of drama and what happened to them is pretty amazing. What happened in their lives. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm in the midst of that. So it's, it's always kind of weird. That's what they say about uh, if you're doing creative works, by the time people are critiquing your project, you should be working on another one. And I'm kind of following that, that motto, you know, so that you don't get too upset because there is a certain level of you come out with a, a film and it's your baby and people look at it and say, well, your baby's ugly, you know? And and you have to deal with that on some level. That some people are going to find your baby ugly. Some people are going to find your baby beautiful, though, too. So, uh, but you just keep making stuff, and I make it because that's what I do. I like to tell stories, and and my background is both in journalism and in fiction. I have an MFA in creative writing, and I have uh, one book that is out, but it's out of print now. Uh, so I, you know, why am I? Why do I do this stuff? Just because it seems like a good idea. To, to tell stories, you know, and I, and, and I got into that with telling Gary Kent's story. Gary, I've written about Gary Kent. I met him at a, I met him at an agent's conference a million years ago and uh, came back and told my then girlfriend, now wife, that I met this amazing guy. And I, I said, I need to track him down and write about him. And so I wrote about him some, and then uh, we became friends. And I kept telling him, that somebody needs to do a documentary about you. And he was coming out with a memoir. And I realized that it, that it was time for me to just do the documentary myself. And so I set off to do it. And it took a lot longer to do that than it did Rondo and Bob because I had to figure out how to do it, you know? Uh, and that takes a while. There's a tendency to, t to say, here's the story and go to somebody who knows more about you, uh, about the film process than you do, and say, here, make this for me. And I, and in the end, I realized you cannot do that. You must do it. Uh, and, and, you know, I sat down with my editor and the two of us cranked the, the film out, cranked out Danger God r rather quickly, actually, the, the final edit. We did it over summer. So that's a long, again, another long answer to a short question. You, uh, I hope uh, anyone listening to this is like, uh, w walks away, like 
creatively invigorated because uh, I want to keep so. up with your pace. <laughs> <laughs> you use lockdown well, they, time they well. They take a long time to make. You know, they take a long time to make. Yeah. So you have, to, you have to be patient with that part of the things. You think it's going to be done quickly. I mean, Rondo and Bob, uh, COVID hit. Man, it, it really messed us up. Uh, we had one screening at a film festival, and I don't know, and we won Best of Fest, but I don't know how many people were willing, were actually there. It was close to, uh, it was close to Rondo's hometown of Tampa, and I was not there because I was afraid of COVID, you know. Uh, so I don't, you know, and, and then then things ramped up, and we had a really nice festival run, uh, and we're not done. Uh, we we're accepted to a, a rather old and well-known horror festival. It's called Terror Molins in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in Barcelona or Barcelona, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, so we're not actually done. I thought we were done with film festivals, but apparently we're not. Uh, I have a, and I have a sales agent, and he says that part of that is that we need to sell the European market because we're just released in, in U.S. and Canada right now. So not the, not the rest of the world. The rest of the world awaits. That'll be an exciting little venture too, and and just yeah. to be um, you know really selfish, if you uh, you know if you're interested uh, doing uh, bringing the film like Monster Mania or anything, it is near me, so I just <laughs> love to get the screening of that. Yeah, yeah, we're open to to, to any of the fest. Yeah, uh, tell tell somebody there about us, and and we would love to screen. Oh yeah, I I can definitely uh, try to reach out um, to the to the promoter because uh, it's. So like Rondo and Bob is so up like their alley for some of the things they do. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. Do it. Awesome. I uh, will. And I just, it's been, it's been great having you on here. Um, cannot wait for that book. Um, oh, obviously thanks. everyone needs to check out danger God and definitely check out Rondo and Bob, uh, which is streaming now. It's, it's very easy to watch. Please, please, please watch it. Um, love to talk to you again, Joe. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Thank you both. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Where can people find you? Um, No, I'm I'm at joeoconnell.com. There's rondoandbob.com. We have a Facebook page and, uh, you know, Rondo and Bob on Twitter. So we're all over the place. Try to keep all that stuff updated as much as possible. Fantastic. Um, Well, this has been Box Office Pulp. This has been Joe Connell with us. I've been Mike. This has been Jamie. You can, of course, always find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon uh, Music, Spotify, all the various podcast places. But, of course, boxofficepulp.com. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You you people listening know the drill. So You're all sick of us already. Hey. <laughs> good night, everybody. <laughs> and like that, he's gone. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.